Welcome to The Anthroposopher, where we bring anthroposophy to life through interviews, conversations, and explorations. I'm Lars Scapatici, your host. In this episode with Nathaniel Williams of Free Columbia in Columbia County, New York, we apply the philosophy of freedom to the issues of modern life. We talk about technology, balancing out individuality with art, and the attitude of taking in the whole. If you've liked the podcast, please subscribe and consider becoming a member of the Anthroposophical Society in America. Now, here's Nathaniel. Good morning, Nathaniel. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today on The Anthroposopher. I'm so glad you could be here. I'm and glad to be here too. I can see you. No, people won't be able to see you, but I can see some beautiful art behind you. And <laughs> Oh, yes. A little puppet on the fridge and on top of the fridge there, yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's part of the reason we're talking today. So um, let me just let let me just let people know what's going on for you right now. So Nathaniel Williams, you live in kind of rural New York in a little village um, that has some art going on, and uh, Free Columbia is part of that initiative, which is a way for people to access and create art in a community that, and it's very accessible in terms of how people get to it financially. So you've tried to make it free and we can talk about art dispersals a little bit and what those are a little bit later. And also right now you're touring around the country going to high schools, but mainly Waldorf high schools and talking about um, the youth conference that's coming up in Halifax, uh, August 8th through the 12th in Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia. So we're going to talk about that a little, but really what I thought we could talk about is the philosophy of freedom. And that's one of Steiner's um, most amazing works. Uh, there's so many, but I know it's the one that was an entry point for you. So why don't you talk about that a little bit and tell us a little bit more about yourself and then we'll just jump in. Okay. Yeah, the, the philosophy of freedom, it was, a, it was a significant book for me. I mean, I, I remember when I was, I was living when I was 19 years old in this, this kind of um, crazy street in Atlanta, Georgia. I was playing in a band um, and, uh, you know, we were just playing in bars, um, a bunch of young musicians. And I had, uh, I had some friends who were, who were anthroposophists and, 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 and I was reading books by Rudolf Steiner and I was interested in them, but it, it really was when I read The Philosophy of Freedom that I, I became very interested. Um, and I became so interested. Uh, there were some, some things that took place in my life at that point. I, I quit this band I was in, and I, I got a one-way ticket to visit some friends in, in, at the Goethe Annum in Dornach, Switzerland, to see if I could learn more. Um, so, yeah, no, it, 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 was, it really hit me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing that it affected you so much that you changed your life, uh, essentially, after reading it very, very drastically, in a way, moved over and went deeper yeah. in an art school, right? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing is I actually didn't intend to go to art school, but I would have, I was looking for a philosophy program, but I ended up meeting the closest thing to a philosopher. There was this painter I met who had a program, I mean, it's not quite true, but where there was a program with someone that was really working with thinking um, was at this art school that I attended. Mm. And, okay. Yeah, I had been creative. I had been uh, all my life. My father was a painter. Um, and before I knew it, I was enrolled. 
Wow. Wow. It drew you in. You it know? did. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so maybe we can start there. So I don't know, you know, some people are really able to jump into philosophy of freedom and it's like their book. And I've definitely mm -hmm. talked to people like that. And then other people have a harder time with it. And then, you know, there's everybody kind of in the middle. Um, but overall, I would say, what do you see in the world right now? And maybe it's just timeless, um, but I don't know. Circumstances seem a little more dire now <laughs> than usual, but I, I, maybe it feels like that in every age. But where do you see the application right now? Can you talk about thinking, living thinking, and freedom in thinking, um, and what that means now for us? Yeah, the, um, the application, I mean, the work is, is um, I, I think it has so many parts of, um, parts of the book and the work touch on um, just existential issues, actually, of life today. I mean, I was just down in New York City um, on Friday night. I, I was at an event where Naomi Klein was interviewing Shoshana Suboff. And Shoshana Zuboff just published this huge study called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism that she's been working on for years. And, um, you know, pretty much it's, it's just a detailed study of how we are using our technology today. And mm -hmm. we're using it in such a way that we're actually undermining freedom, mm. democracy. And she, you know, she points out a lot of things that people maybe dimly know, they don't know very consciously. But um, I think after recent political events, for instance, the um, Cambridge Analytica news stories of yeah. how, um, you know, technology was being used to target people secretly, to mm -hmm. influencing them, to influence them subconsciously. Now, a lot of people may think, well, this has always been kind of a, you know, part of politics and social life. And uh, definitely to some extent that's true. Um, but she, she kind of points out that this logic, while it might not be full flown, uh, a full grown influence on, um, on kind of oppressing people's freedom, and influencing them and kind of manipulating them without their knowing it, such as you might find, for instance, in China. Um, it is, however, very pernicious. Mm -hmm. And when you look at how uh, the whole digital revolution, the logic that the digital revolu revolution is following, you can see that when you're online and you're searching and you're, you're shopping and, you're really the product. People are buying all of your data. And then they're using that data to actually integrate advertisements and suggest suggestive things into yourself, into your life. Mm -hmm. Which, and, and they're finding ways actually to profit off of all this knowledge that they have of you and to influence you in order to become more of a consumer so that they can make they can make profits. Um, mm -hmm. And this is really the business model <laughs> of the current digital landscape um, is, is 
is one of manipulation, undermining freedom, undermining democracy. Um, and as we saw with Cambridge Analytic, it's just one step removed from being used for pernicious, in a similar way, for pernicious political means. So, okay, so you, you see them speak last night, and then when you think, and, and this is, I'm glad we're talking about technology one away, right away, because that's one of the places where you see our freedom being affected, but how, so when you think of philosophy of freedom, and you think of this influence technology is, is having, what is the antidote, according to Steiner? What is the antidote in that Well. Book? Yeah, I mean, the philosophy of freedom is really, it's a work of political theory, even though it's also a work of uh, self-development. Um, it's, and the view at the root of the philosophy of freedom of the human being is that um, people, society should be organized in such a way that there's a high tolerance and an encouragement of people to um, come up with creative and individual responses to life um, to actually give themselves their own motives and meaning in life. And, you know, this is one of the leading motifs of the educational movement that he founded, which was the Waldorf school movement um, that you should organize society in such a way that people connect to primal intuitions out of their own creative activity for how they want to guide their lives. And when you look at a society that's organizing itself in order to subconsciously provide meaning to people's lives, both economically and politically, it's the direct opposite of what he, for instance, suggested was most important um, in the organization of society. Can you say that again? I mean, I think that was so important. You use the word subconsciously provide meaning. That's yes. Huge. Yeah. Ah, wow. Yeah. I mean, are you responsible for, are you really involved and responsible for your social and political thoughts? You know, what if you were, what if there's a very sophisticated and complex program actually to shape your mind from an, a, an aristocracy of technocrats and politicians. <laughs> and that may seem like for some people they hear that, they might think, wow, that is so dark. However, I really encourage people to take a look at the age of surveillance capitalism, this book that I mentioned, just as a empirical, um, it's not only empirical, but it's very well researched. And it's also a thought piece. You know, she's asking questions of freedom. Mm -hmm. It's not that far fetched. Look, right. you know, look into the Cambridge Analytica event, and you can see um, this is very pertinent. The question of freedom, of individualism, protecting the individual—it's—it's um, it's right in there with Facebook, um, Google, uh, privacy policies. Every time we check those little boxes. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Putting ourselves on the market. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so I, I'm thinking about this in terms of technology. I mean, I, wouldn't people say, "Well, you still have, you still have freedom. You know, you you still are able to have your own thoughts and ideas about things, even though maybe you know you 
you say the word trampoline and then suddenly on your computer trampoline ad pops up, which apparently is happening. I mean, we're focusing really a lot on technology and we're going to move to some other subjects, but, but why can, can you talk about that erosion just a little bit more and, and what steps, I mean, obviously there wasn't this kind of technology when Steiner was around. Yeah. Um, but he was speaking to something. Yeah. Speaking to some other influences, right? Or um, just a lack of uh, one's own thinking. So can you, can you break that right. a little bit? Well, Steiner was, he really advocated for, you know, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't anti-business. He wasn't anti-economics. He had a view of economics that was, you know, pro uh, technology. He definitely believed technology could be used in a moral way, a social way. But, um, and he wasn't unlike Henry Ford and Edison in that regard. Both of them also were severe critics of the direction that the Industrial Revolution took. Um, but, you know, what he thought was it was really important to try to organize social life and also particularly culture in such a way that you, you didn't have kind of mass influence campaigns, that you encouraged grassroots, creative, individualistic, creative initiative um, as much as possible. And he thought because this was because the most valuable things and the most creative, vital things in culture have their origins actually in individual activity, not in um, kind of groupthink or um, big group processes or social control. And so he generally promoted extreme independence in cultural life and, um, for instance, in public discourse, um, people being able to write what they wanted uh, and um, encouraging that and trying, not, and trying to hold back influences that would, would try to make, for instance, education efficient, would try to make um, discussions and social exchanges efficient um, and uh, productive. Um, we try to organize education, colleges, universities, uh, newspapers in such a way that they could serve economic interests um, and bring us closer to kind of material wealth and abundance. Um, he thought that was the wrong path, yeah. Um, and he didn't have the digital revolution to deal with, um, <laughs> and uh, and we do. Yeah, yeah. But it, he did have the industrial revolution, uh, right? Yeah, behind it. Gotcha. So it's this more. Um, I mean, just to clarify, though he felt strong about individual freedom, he also brought very strongly this concept of love and not love in a way that, you know, sort of we think about it in a surface play, like you got to love everybody. It's not quite like that, but like a picture of the human being and their value and their sort of eternal <laughs> quality that we should all be recognizing within each other. So yeah. it's not at the sacrifice of, um, it's not this individualism that I think people would associate with like maybe Anne Rand or like, like certain people get co-opted because they have this really, this focus on individual freedom. 
Yeah. But it's not sacrificing love um, and, and regard for other and um, creativity and, and understanding a constant attempt to understand the other people and oneself, yeah. right? I don't know if you can illuminate that a little bit because I think people get You're right sometimes. You're absolutely right. I mean, that, that is a, there are, I mean, in certain ways, uh, Steiner's whole spiritual inspiration was very connected to certain strains of um, liberal thought that we're very familiar with. Definitely not Ayn Rand, but Wilhelm von Humboldt, who inspired John Stuart Mill's famous treatise on liberty, um, he was very dear to Steiner's heart. Um, he, he thought he had written a wonderful piece in The Limits of State Action, which isn't primarily about economic freedom. Mm -hmm. um, it's more about um, individualism in a, in, in a cultural sense. Um, and Steiner, like you're saying, he thought that people actually, instead of using love, I'm going to use selfless. Um, Great. They, uh, people were motivated by ideals that they loved. And these ideals often were not selfish ideals, but full of meaning. Mm -hmm. And that does seem to actually resonate with many people we might know whose meaning in their lives, they're, they're really, they're in love with some action or some motive that they have. And they just want to do it. They're totally enthused by an idea and they'll sacrifice everything for it. Mm -hmm. Everything. Almost like uh, there's a saying, you know, find something you love and let it kill you. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's, a certain, uh, there's a certain quality of that in the philosophy of freedom. It's full of a warmth and enthusiasm for finding motives that you love mm -hmm. and really following them. And he was convinced that motives that were born out of a kind of warm living thinking were of essentially self selfless, right. that they were moral, that morality entered uh, into existence through exactly those processes, through individuals falling in love with certain ideas and with all of their being, all of their heart, everything they had just working for them. But I do also want to just mention, because um, it's important for Steiner's political thought, was that he thought that they were other sources of empathy, of social feeling and virtue, and he didn't leave everything to individualism. He thought that, for instance, in economic life, when we have good jobs and we're proud of what we do and we work with other people to fulfill others' needs, um, if we have something we love doing, we go to work every day, that that was actually a source of a social feeling that he called fraternity, uh, following the French Revolution. And you can't get that through individualism. You really get it through working together in the economy on, 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 the, on fulfilling needs for other people. Um, it's a deep social feeling, fraternity. Um, and he also thought equality was something that was particularly engendered through, through participation in democracy. So politics. Uh, so those were other ways that there were social feelings. It wasn't all to come through individual freedom. There were other sources of very important social feelings. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Okay, thanks for illuminating that a bit. That was helpful.
Yeah, because it's complex, and if you hear one side of it, you can think it's one-sided, and it's yeah. not. It's, it's, a right. full, it's a full picture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so where else, um, can we talk about the sort of, oh, I don't know, nationalism and politics and the refugee crisis and um, in relationship to this book? I mean, would you have any any thoughts or connections there? I, I, I just feel like, and maybe things like racism and um, all, all of these things that are really just right there for us to look at right now that just keep showing up again and again and asking to be, to yeah. really be thought about in a, in a free way um, and to be changed, I think. So I don't know, would mm. anything there? Yeah, um, you know, I'm going to start by just saying, let's suggest that the philosophy of freedom is not a work of philosophy in a sense of an abstract kind of thought system that you can learn about. But let's suggest that if you try out what's written in that book, that you can see and understand certain parts of life and reality that are otherwise kind of hard to make sense of and you don't understand very well. Um, Hmm. One of those, the primary subject, uh, so I think Steiner wrote it like that. He wanted it to be a kind of expansion of experience. He didn't want it to be a thought system. Hmm. And so one of the core experiences at the heart of the philosophy of freedom is when you you turn towards a person because it's really about in the, about people and freedom um, and you you view them as if all the meaning that you needed to understand them really came out of them now that is that is an interesting perspective. It's like, it's kind of, it's very one-sided. People will say, well, that's ridiculous because we obviously come from families, social conditioning, economic situations that are very determinant on who we are, um, religious beliefs, um, trauma, etc. That if you try to explain the individual as if they were like totally self-created, you would be an idiot. Now, and there's definitely truth to realizing that we can't explain everyone through total self-realization and self-creation. But what Steiner kind of develops in the philosophy of freedom is a way of looking at people so that through um, their participation in, say, a certain nation like the United States, and through their participation in a particular gender, for instance, or through their participation in a certain ethnicity, or through their participation in a certain vocation, you try to see where do I find something that's generative, that's expressing itself through these different layers. that something is really, really unique. Um, I only use all those things 
so that they can help me see the individual better. This is a way of approaching people where you, you end up having a kind of um, awe, a kind of reverence for the individual, the particular person, where regardless of their, um, the context that they appear in and how that might influence them, you, you try to look through that. And of course, this is an attitude that will not be totally foreign to Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it so touching, uh, you know, to follow some of uh, Barack Obama's uh, exchanges and commentary on Marilyn Robinson, the author from um, Iowa, and her view on the kind this on the human being being a being this worthy of reverence really resonates with a lot of the attitudes in the philosophy of freedom. And in a way, the closest attitude that you can find to this way of looking at people is as if you're looking at them as a work of art. Hmm. Something totally particular that expresses something that is irreplaceable. Um, And it touches you. And This attitude towards people goes against attitudes of racism, attitudes of sexism, any attitude that would define an individual through some mass characteristic feature. And one of the most touching examples for me is I've visited sometimes the Camp Hill communities, um, which I don't know if you've been to one before, but they... um, there are people living there participating in a social life, um, a kind of therapeutic life who might have Down syndrome or um, might have autism or some other, what people would call disability. And it is so moving to meet some of the people in the, in the Camp Hill movement who, even in these extreme cases, look for individuality in these people. Um, Maybe individuality which has a more difficult time coming to expression. But that same reference for the self of a person, um, they cultivate in everything they do. Um, I bring that up because it's, it's an example of how an attitude like this that can reveal certain things about the human being to you can lead to a more intense tolerance and not only tolerance, but actually reverence for people. And, uh, and I think it is a anti- one anecdote, not the sole anecdote, but one anecdote to nationalism, mm-hmm. racism, sexism that you mentioned before. That's great. I, I love what you just offered there that each person is a is you can view each person as a work of art yeah yeah okay so so personally like you said i'm I'm trying to imagine this i feel like i can do this so well with people i don't know (laughs) 
<laughs> and then sometimes for all of us, you know, it's harder with people that maybe we're closer to. How is this for you? Like, what have there been times where, like, like what do you do within yourself when mm -hmm. you're faced with that kind of challenge that mm -hmm. brings you back to that, um, that way of viewing the human being when you're in conflict or you're, mm -hmm. you know, your opinion is so strong because there's maybe some hurt or something there. Like what, I don't know, personally, what is that like? I know it's challenging for me, so I'm sure it's challenging for other people. Maybe I'm the only one, but I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely not the only one. I think that, um, one, I mean, what, so this is, this is something in social science that is connected to um, uh, an approach called interpretism, interpretivism, excuse me. Um, there are varieties of it, but one thing that seems clear is when we think certain things in the presence of another person, different parts of that person can become conscious to us. You said when we think certain things, certain things in the yes. presence of a person, yeah. those can, things can be con become conscious to us. Yeah, different yes. things can become conscious to us. So for instance, if I'm having a difficult time with someone, and I'm really focusing on how I'm really irritated by them for some, you know, quality that they have. My, one of my main, like when it's a really simple thing you can do is you, first of all, is just try to kind of center yourself and, and, uh, and then try to take the big picture and think about the fact that there, this person, think this person is an individual and, they may have this irritating, this quality that I find irritating. And yet when I look at how they're acting through, through their deeds, through um, their overall life, through how they approach and relate to people, is there something that's expressing itself through all of that? Something bigger, something that makes this little irritation actually look minute. And just asking the question, if you just think that thought. Now, some people might find this petty. This is not petty. This is like, we do this all the time, mostly unconsciously. Mostly we're just thinking habitual thoughts that make up, for instance, the neoliberal social life that we participate in today. But we can shift that. And with it, our experience shifts. And we may have some slight impression of something greater that also counterbalances our irritation, you know, and we may not, and it might take, you know, five, 10 times. Some people you might have a particularly difficult time with some people going through a crisis in their life who are being extremely antisocial or um, you may have a really hard time with it. Um, but it is a, uh, it's an attitude in the thought that can just by thinking it and, and then seeing what happens to your experience. Um, that's already a significant approach. Um, but I happen to also think that through making sure that you have a lot of art in your life, <laughs> it supports this, uh, 
this capacity to appreciate the particular, to appreciate particularism. Um, and that is an old argument in political theory that goes back to Friedrich Schiller, a famous German. Wow. Okay, so let's let's go on to art. I have so I have so many more questions, and Nathaniel, we're probably just going to have to do the scan because okay. we have a philosophy, <laughs> a philosophy of freedom feature on the podcast or something. Great, um, <laughs> as things come up in the world. Um, but yeah, let let's talk about what you just said about art, um, and maybe you can talk about Free Columbia a little bit. But could can you go into that thinking a little bit about how more art would help you? with and help us all with this ability to have reverence for the other and just be have an open understanding and not you know in, in our thinking and not box things in or make assumptions or yeah well tradition traditionally um art is art has been very strongly associated with aesthetic experience and aesthetic experience is really rooted in the body. It's rooted in perception. It's rooted in um, being filled with the richness of experience. Um, but there are of course other directions in art uh, conceptualism and various, uh, the Dada's movement that I'll just kind of not address right now. But I was particularly talking about movements in art where appreciation and artistic experience are fostered through perception. Um, and artworks are, artworks are really extremely mysterious. I mean, there are these enchanted portions of world experience you look at a painting or a, um, you might um, hear a piece of music or read a, a novel or a poem or see a movie and it's so rich and so full. It's like a self-contained world. Of course, it's not a self-contained world. It's a work of art and it is also subject to all the laws of the cosmos the Mona Lisa will indeed one day decay. <laughs> right. It will break down. However, the cultivation of aesthetic experience is a cultivation of taking in an object or a particular thing as a wholeness, mm -hmm. as a rich wholeness. And there's a certain, it's a certain attitude. And it is akin to the, the attitude that I spoke of earlier about approaching people. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So more art is part of the antidote. Art, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, it's so interesting that that's something that's, I mean, I, I, why don't you talk about Free Columbia? Because I was about to say that, you know, art isn't as supported as perhaps it once was, but I, I don't actually know. I don't want to say that without knowing if that's true or not, because I think, I think it is, I think it is supported in, in some ways. So, so yeah. Can you tell us what you're doing at Free Columbia? Yeah, this is a, this is maybe, this is a great uh, question. I mean, one of the things we're working on at Free Columbia is actually to try to balance out the, the individualism 
that art encourages um, to support it. But I'm actually writing a dissertation right now at the University of Albany, and the focus is on how it's not only important to cultivate aesthetic experience in order to encourage apprehension of people as children of God and Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, language, but we also need to foster aesthetic influence when we study biology mm. and when we study physics and when we study environmental science because we have to be able to reconnect with reverence to the earth because the signature of the century is the question, can you connect with the earth in such a way that you can live sustainably with the life that, that makes up the earth? Mm. And um, so Free Columbia, while it is well known for aesthetic experience, aesthetic education and relationship to art, the new programs that we're starting next year are really much more broad. They're transdisciplinary. Uh, we have some wonderful colleagues from the Nature Institute, which is right down the road from where I am, who are really, really exceptional um, researchers and teachers and individuals. And so the programming is uh, incorporating more and more of a kind of holistic, well-rounded approach to learning. Um, it's kind of an action research part of my dissertation project. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, that's a little bit about Free Columbia. It's a big year for Free Columbia. Mm -hmm. 2020. Growing a lot, yeah. And right now, um, I'm, I'm doing a lot. We're incorporating as an independent not-for-profit. Um, we've been a part of the Hawthorne Valley Association until now. Um, and um, doing some fundraising and grant writing and Gotcha. Trying to get everything lined up. Yeah, that's great. Then lined up so that people can come and experience this individual and collective and reverent experience of art and of each other, right? And of the natural world. That's right. And also social theory, actually. Some mm. of the things we discussed earlier um, will be, there'll, there'll be a component connected to social theory. We just did a program that was really focused on creating a local currency in the area that could be you know, encourage local economic cooperation and social cultural work in the county. Um, hmm. So that's all. It's a very, very diverse program we're beginning here. That's so great. And I just met with John McManus, who is currently teaching at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And John is brilliant. Um, he's a eurythmist. Um, he's a, a director, an actor, um, a voice artist. And uh, he is very interested in coming up and starting a full-time program in performing arts here as part of Free Columbia in 2020. Um, we just spent last week working together on that. And so um, stay tuned. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so when you're going to the high schools, 
um, around the country. You're talking a little bit about Free Columbia. I know this, um, uh, everything that you've just brought, I'm sure, is, is connected to what you talk about with these students. What do you think, um, two things, can you talk a little bit about Halifax and what you think is shaping up there? And then what do you think these students that are graduating right now? I mean, you just said the question, I believe you said, the question of the century is, is how we live um, sustainably with this planet, um, how we are here and we're connected. What else do you think they're facing? Or is, I don't know, when you look out into those groups and you see their faces and. Yeah. Um, I, so there's a, there's a presenter who's coming to the Halifax conference um, from, she's from Spain originally. She's doing um, some research on young people, um, where they are, where they see themselves going. And she has one research question um, that has somewhat of a history. If what lives in me becomes a reality in tw by 2030, what will the world look like? Mm -hmm. And what will I do to make that happen? And this is a, this is a question of fire. And mm -hmm. I ask it whenever I go. Uh, to to present at the high schools um and i also just tell younger folks you know get together and talk please get together and talk and ask the hard questions push one another not in a way that's cold or judgmental but that's authentic mm-hmm see one another. I know that the fact that I attended youth conferences and worked with many people in my generation over the last 20 years has supported me being able to try to work for some of the things I really believe in. And I feel like the younger generation is finding that in one another. Um, there are this year global globally organized high school walkouts related to climate change protests. In fact, I think in a couple, in one week or a little over, there's a global school walkout day. And I just encourage young people to get together and to look deeply into one another. And I think you'll find some things in one another that you will need. <laughs> you will need. And you'll need to also be seen by your friends and future colleagues. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I feel like there's a human revolution or something and all, all that you've just said in a way, you know, what you're asking them to do. And it, and it's contrary to some of what, well, what we are back to the beginning, what technology is telling them to do and to think. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a little grotesque, but I think that when you look at the way people are treated on Facebook and other sites that use advertising in order to, you know, and selling data in order to, to promote their business or have a business model, you really have people that are extracting things from you. And at the same time, 
they're extracting things from you. And at the same time, they're shaping your personality. Mm-hmm. They're shaping your social relationships. Yeah. Um, it's an extremely extractive process, but instead of extracting coal and steel, it's gotten to personality and, um, and it's, it's, it's as damaging, but on a deeper level. And that may seem very dark. I hope it does, because I'd really like to light some fires in relationship to, to this issue. Um, I think it's really important to look this in, in the eye. Um, and in Halifax, a lot of these issues are going to come up. And this is an event for people who are between 18, you know, 16 and 35. That's kind of the idea. And you can meet. You can talk. You can explore these things. Mm-hmm. And we're doing everything we can to make it affordable. Spread the word for anyone who's listening. Come. We'd love to see you in Halifax. I know it's far away. We're all making that journey except for a couple of local folks. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's beautiful. Um, but it's going to be beautiful. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's a good, it's a memorable place to meet. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And do you know the website right off the top of your head? Yes, um, there is a website uh, where you can find out about the Halifax Conference and then also a lot of different programs for young, uh, young people, actually, gap years and events. It's um, nayouthsection.org, and NA stands for North American, so nayouthsection.org. That's great. Thanks. Yeah. Nathaniel, it's been amazing talking with you. Well, you. you too. Thank you for all you do, Laura. My my mother is uh, is a fan of yours. She just <laughs> told me about a an online event she participated that you organized. Oh, yeah. that's super. Well, yeah. tell her thanks for having you. And- <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, she'll probably listen to this so she can hear she can hear for herself. I'm sure she will want to listen to this. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to another conversation, and we'll take it from there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Anthroposopher. Stay tuned for our next episode.